Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 66th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Adam Bierenbaum. Adam is the CEO of Buckingham Strategic Wealth and BAM Advisor Services, a, a combination of wealth management and firm and TAMP platform that oversees more than $30 billion of assets under management. What's unique about Adam, though, is that he took over as the CEO of the Buckingham Companies just over 10 years ago at the age of just 32, when the company was only $6 billion of assets under management, and has nearly quintupled its size since then as, as one of the youngest CEOs of any major advisory firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about the Buckingham and BAM growth strategy, particularly on how a major investment by Focus Financial has helped to power the firm's growth, giving Buckingham access to capital from Focus at near 0% interest rates to fund its acquisitions because Focus ultimately profits from the growth as an owner anyway. And the way that Adam and Buckingham have been able to leverage the capital to accelerate their inorganic growth. We also talk about the actual structure of Buckingham and BAM itself, why Buckingham has chosen to grow offices in multiple locations, how BAM Advisor Services aims to work with advisory firms by providing what they call a turnkey wealth management platform that provides the back office services but does not necessarily require its advisors to use their standardized investment models. And how the company is positioning itself for an increasingly competitive environment with threats from both low-cost robo-advisors and also large financial services firms like Schwab Fidelity and especially Vanguard getting into the advisory business. And be certain to listen to the end where Adam talks about what it's like to be the CEO of a $30 billion AUM firm, where he focuses his own time as a leader in the business, and why he believes that strategy is important, but the real determinant of the most successful advisory firms of the future will be all about the firm's ability to execute and deliver on the client experience. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Adam Bierenbaum. Welcome, Adam Berenbaum, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. A true pleasure to be here and an honor. I'm excited to have you on the, the podcast today to talk about, I think, a, a couple of themes or, or perspectives that we haven't really covered on the podcast before. Because you guys are, by, by a good size margin, the largest advisory firm that we've had onto the podcast, you know, Buckingham Wealth and BAM Alliance put together, I know you guys are, are over $30 billion under management. Uh, you, I guess, run the grand show as the CEO, a, a role that you took over at the the tender age of 32 just a couple of years ago. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like not, not a lot of firms out there at $30 billion, even fewer that are run by someone who's just closing in on 40 and has already been doing it for several years. You guys have a lot of unique things about what you do at the business there. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited to tell some of the story and share just what, what's it like being a guy that's running a $30 billion uh, AUM firm. Oh, well, well, thank you. I uh, no, I'm excited to talk about all of this stuff. You know, as I will always say, it's fun to share this. We are certainly doing some interesting 
kind of different, unique things. And hopefully this is valuable to your listeners. And at the very least, I know you and I will both have some fun talking. I, I think we will. I think we will. So I, maybe just to start it off, like just paint a picture for us of this this giant $30 billion base of of stuff that you do. I know there's, there's a couple of different businesses. You've kind of got a, a core wealth management business. You also have a TAMP platform for other advisors. So how do you describe like the 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 family of companies under the umbrella for you? Sure. So, you know, I think at, at the very core, we are a, a financial services organization. And in many ways, I, I like to think of us as a destination for like-minded advisors. So if you're an entrepreneur and you just simply are excited about having your own business and running that, and that is critical and core to you, BAM Advisor Services is a great destination. That's our TAMP. That's our wealth management partner to other like-minded firms. And if you're a great wealth advisor and you're either at a stage of your life or your career where being the entrepreneur isn't all it was cracked up to be, or it's just simply time to transition on, or you're a great advisor that wants to be in an environment and a culture that is focused on development, a very strong investment ideology, a very strong planning approach, then then Buckingham might be your destination. And um and 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 those that's the two core businesses, Buckingham Strategic Wealth and BAM Advisor Services. And uh, okay. I guess so, so Bucking Buckingham is the core wealth management firm. BAM Advisor Services is the the TAMP platform. Exactly. And and, Buck, okay. and Buckingham today, uh, just to, to give uh, everyone uh, a little bit of pers- perspective, is about $13.1 billion, uh, as, as we sit here recording this, and, and BAM is over $20 billion. But th- those $20 billion of assets are really those of the independent firms that, uh, that partner with us. So, so, that, so that's how we get to somewhere between 33 and $34 billion, depending upon where markets are these days. So I, I love that I, I just kind of rounded you to to thirty billion because you know it's it's easy to round off numbers. Never mind that that was a that was three billion dollars of rounding error. So I'm I sorry about that. That's kind of a mind blowing number to think about. It's it's uh, it, it's hard to sometimes think about you know where you start in the wealth management business where you're just focused on getting that first client in the door and to be talking about numbers and scale and size that like like we are and at the same time I think we all have the perspective of we we really do still know our place and rank so to speak within the broader financial services organization you know world you know firms like Edward Jones firms like Morgan Stanley uh, and so forth you know we're still such yeah. a fraction of their size. Yeah, it, it is an interesting dynamic that I find we you know, like as much as the independent advisory movement has grown, and we talk about you know, the the surge and growth of RIAs, and it and it used to be that you know it was like someday some of these RIAs are going to have a billion dollars under management, and then and then a lot of firms hit a billion dollars. It seems like uh, ten billion is the new billion now, and we see firms that are are breaking the ten million threshold and and cresting the twenty billion. Threshold. You know, I know United Capital just went over that line, and and Edelman Financial just went over that line, and and you guys are up there at thirty billion dollars, and and blew past that number. And then at the same time, I know like Merrill Lynch alone, just Merrill, is more than two trillion, and then Morgan Stanley is another two trillion. 
So there is still this, this aspect of it to me that like, you know, it, it's, it's humbling for how, just re- understanding how large wirehouses really are when you, when you recognize like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley alone have more assets on their two f- platforms than Schwab, Fidelity, and TD Ameritrade have in all RIA assets combined. Yep. Well, so I think you said I think you said it well. It's humbling, but at the same time, yeah. how much opportunity is out there, right? Yeah. So as a young guy within this industry, I look at that and I sit there and say, my gosh, you know, we've made so much progress over the past few decades. What's possible in the decades to come? And you know, again, you, you've got to be humble. You've got to have perspective that uh, that that taking on the large wirehouses is a daunting task. But somebody's going to do it. So you know, someone in this space is going to emerge to be able to compete against the largest of wirehouses. I think that's pretty cool to think about. So as you as you look at these two firms, Buckingham is thirteen billion and then BAM is is 20 billion. Buckingham's kind of the core wealth management and then and then BAM advisor services is a TAMP. So can we go a little bit deeper on, on each of these maybe separately? So let's just start on the Buckingham. So $13 billion under management. Like what does that look like? Like how many clients is that? How many advisors is that? Like what is the what does the staffing look like to to do thirteen billion dollars under management? Sure. So you know our organization is so tightly connected that there is a lot of overlap between folks that work on both sides of the business. So I'll start off by sharing that, which is we've always said that Buckingham is the living laboratory for BAM. It is the test kitchen. It is the model, if you will, and and it's our, always been our dream that. BAM was going to ultimately be mini versions of Buckingham in people's, you know, local communities. So collectively across the organization, we've got 285 team members, I think uh, with some transaction activity, which I'm sure we'll get into later, we'll certainly soar by 300 in the coming weeks and months, you know, and we'll end up well north of that by end of 2018. But at Buckingham, We've got 20 different locations these days. So St. Louis is certainly our headquarters, but we have offices all over the country. And I think that's really important because I do believe that national organizations with scale and size and resources, capabilities, expertise need to still remember that this is a local, intimate, boutique business. And you've got to serve your clients in very personal ways. And a lot of that is geography. And so, you know, for us, we have really, you know, been passionate about having locations where our clients are. We have approximately 100 wealth advisors. Now, that includes associate wealth advisors. And and again, we can certainly talk more about that. But I think most folks think about our industry as one where, you know, it's very barbelled as it relates to the ages of advisory team members. And so you certainly have the senior statesmen and women who have, you know, often the founders of organizations and now a next generation that's coming up. And unfortunately, not all that much in the middle. Well, you know, the reality is we like to team wealth advisors with associate wealth advisors to create that kind of development opportunity, that teaching hospital of sorts. And so we have 100 team members who are advisory personnel 
working with clients, so, but, but both of a senior and junior level. And I think you also asked about the number of clients. So we've got about 6,000 clients representing the 13.1 billion or so of, uh, of assets at Buckingham. So just doing rough math, $13 billion, about 6,000 clients, like your average client is a little over $2 million, if I'm yeah, doing that math aver- right? Yeah, our average investable assets for, for clients is, is, is north of $2 million. But the reality is we range from you know young professionals getting going to extremely high net worth families and everything in between. But uh, I, I, I would share that it, that it, our sweet spot is probably that one to ten million dollar family. Okay. Yeah, and then and then bringing to life the BAM side of the business. So that twenty billion dollars of collective assets is really among about a hundred and forty or so firms. So what we decided a long time ago is that we weren't going to be a volume business on the BAM side. What we wanted to do is work with folks in a very deep, holistic way, just like you know you do on the wealth management side, but not just be a processor, truly help them in all ways. And to be very candid, it makes for a lower margin tamp, but we've help firms get into the business. We've helped them grow. We've got a number of firms that are at or approaching a billion dollars. You know, that's really meaningful to us. I I told you one of the things that we had a vision for was to create these versions of Buckingham and, or to help others create these versions of Buckingham. And I think when folks, you know, go from zero to several hundred million or a billion dollars of assets and, and have done that with, very little team members and just really focused on their end client and having the access to resources and capabilities like a big firm might build out. That's pretty cool. Um, That's a leverage model. And it's certainly the type of business that I think advisors dream of versus (laughs) ones with gigantic staffs and infrastructure and all of the fixed costs and, and, and other elements of that. On the, so on the BAM side, like, can you help us understand a little bit more? Like, what do you, what are you guys doing there? I mean, I get there's there's some outsourced investment management process where you're you're managing dollars for them, and, and that's why you get to claim twenty billion dollars under under management for the TAM because you're managing it. But what is that TAM? What else goes on that TAM service? Like, what does that look like compared to just all, all the other all the other TAMs that are out there? Right, we got everything from. Loring Ward folks over to mega firms like SEI. Like what how does BAM compare and contrast that? Yeah. So so probably a very different model, very different ideology to a Loring Ward, who we're great friends with and think the world of. In fact, uh spend a whole lot of time with their leadership uh talking about the future of the industry and Again, we're very aligned with what they're doing. But the reality is actually, and, and, and I'll clear up a misnomer, which is we don't actually manage investments for our BAM clients. That's something that a lot of folks think about. So the word TAMP, while it is an e- well, it's easy vernacular to use to describe what we are and to ultimately give folks a little bit of way to zero in or target what we do, probably a better phrase for us is something more like a turnkey wealth management partner. So we're providing all of the back office services. We're providing a technology stack. We're providing the vendor relationships, helping folks to really interface and interact with scale 
from the custodians to the mutual fund providers to the technology solution providers and everything in between. We're providing investment strategy solutions to folks, but we're leaving it up to them to actually do the implementation with one primary exception, which is, or or I should actually say two, the fixed income side. We do create custom laddered bond portfolios for for our firms, for their higher net worth clients. And then on the retirement plan side, we help people get into that retirement plan business, which is a very exciting and awesome business to be in. You can help a lot of people and it can be very rewarding. But if you do not have a partner in that and you have only a handful of plans, that can be a very challenging and, 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 and in fact, even dangerous business to be in. It's, it's a little bit like running with scissors. So we will be the, uh, the investment manager on that side of the business as well. But and that but means other you're, you're talking when you say retirement planning, like you don't, you don't mean helping individuals plan their retirement. You're talking about like 401k Qualified yeah, profit sharing, yeah, okay. 401k plans, profit sharing plans, uh, everything that falls into okay. those kinds of categories. So okay. Okay. Uh, basically being a turnkey provider for that. You know, we're also helping people with content. So, you know, one of the one of the, the good, but also maybe, you know, overwhelming things about the services we provide is we produce so much original content, whether it's around investment ideology and, and our strategy, whether now it's around planning topics, whether it's around life topics. And we we provide that to our firms in the form of certainly white papers, in the form of newsletters, in the form of client letters, in the form of articles that they can utilize so that they can not just arm themselves with knowledge, and uh, but, but also put that stuff in front of clients. And again, other marketing solutions as well. So we try to be turnkey and take as much as we possibly can off of the advisor's plate so that they can really spend their time on a handful of things, which is their relationships, planning, and growing their business. And we certainly hope help in all three of those categories as well. But if we can give advisors back more time to focus on those things, then the reality is we end up becoming very inexpensive. And, and that's how we ultimately will demonstrate our value proposition. So I got to ask, though, like if the focus is relationships planning and, and growing the business, why not be more hands-on on the investment implementation of the, the whole portfolio stack as well beyond just the the you know, high net worth custom ladder bond portfolios? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I will share with you that it's something we talk about internally all the time, but a lot, most of it I would share comes from client demand. And so when we talk to the BAM firms that we work with, when we ask them these questions, this is something that has really been important to them, which is to be able to not just have models but customize those solutions for the benefit of their individual clients and their families. So they want to have our investment strategy expertise. They want to have our simulated strategies. They want to have those the tools that make the trading and the rebalancing and the tax loss harvesting efficient. But they want to ultimately press the button as it relates to the implementation. And so if we can reduce that to a very minimal amount of time, then I think we can allow them to have what they're asking for, but at the same time, you know, continue to affect 
the strategy that we have, which is to give them more of their time back, to be more leveraged. Now, I I will tell you, though, that the, the internal dialogue and conversation that we have is not whether we take that all back from them, but whether we give them the option. Of having that. And, and I would tell you, in a more automated world, as tools and technologies expand, there is no question in my mind that that is something that we should absolutely continue to take a look at. And whether that is joining forces with somebody who already does it or building it internally, those are capabilities that, you know, that, that, that may be interesting to have to be able to, to solve problems in, in, in both ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think at some point, like, just the, the fact that you're providing the rest of the back office services, I'm going to presume like that comes down to support on planning support services, admin services, uh, uh, investment services. Like at, at, at some point, it feels like, you know, hey, if you work with us, you can keep control of your investments and implement them. Oh, but I don't have time to implement them. No problem. We'll give you a back office person that helps implement them. So I'm like, you kept control of it, except you don't actually do any of it because you outsource the person who presses the button to the people who you said you weren't going to outsource your investments to. Like, are, is this just a, a thing of like us as independent advisors that we get us stuck in our heads? Like, damn it, I'm going to keep control of my investments now. Please do all of it for me, including the implementation. I could, yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't say it better. Which is, it's really funny when we talk to our various advisor councils, when we've talked to clients over the years. There's only a handful that have said, please take this off my plate. The rest say, uh, no, thank you. Uh, we appreciate the offer, but we want to control this. So whether this is unique to my community, our community of firms, or whether this is a broader industry thing, I, I certainly would say that the overall implementation and and, and figuring out ways to, uh, to make that even more streamlined and take that off of the plate of our firms, which certainly seem to be a value add, but, but whether or not folks are actually comfortable or ready to give it up, you know, interesting. But it, it actually speaks to a broader concept in our industry, which is you have these small independent firms that ultimately need to figure out how to solve for their most precious commodity, which is time. And then you have these larger firms that have built out these infrastructures and teams that can do all of this. They've specialized. So they don't have to focus on that because they've got all those internal resources. At some point, the smaller firms to be able to compete from an expertise standpoint, from a client experience standpoint, have to continue to find more efficient ways to either outsource or do things or they've got to start looking more and more like the larger firms. And that takes investment, that takes time, that takes, you know, execution and strategy. So it, it should be really interesting to see how that all plays out over the coming years. Yeah, it's, it's a, it is a fascinating juxtaposition to me that, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that just pound the table that, you know, growing complexity in the business and, and the, the threats of technology and large firms and competition and robos and all the rest that, you know, the, the solo practitioner is doomed and you have to be giant with huge economies of scale. And then I just look at the raw data of the industry benchmarking studies and, and it basically says solo practitioners have never been more profitable and successful than they are today, way better than it was 10 to 15 years ago. Because all this technology stuff, like the more the more administrative aspects of the advisory business get get automated with technology or at least expedited with technology, 
the easier it seems to be to be a uh, a solo practitioner. You know, in in the past, I needed a staff member to just to schedule my client meetings. Now I just send my clients a a, a link on Calendly or Schedule Once or Time Trade or one of those, and they click their own meeting in uh, 30 seconds, and then it's gotten scheduled. And you know, I used to need a staff member to help me rebalance every single portfolio one at a time. Now I just need some rebalancing technology where I, I just got to hit a button from time to time. A little more setup, but at least once in place. Like I, Not much more than hitting a button to to rebalance and make sure that everything goes where it's supposed to go. And you know, all this technology, to me, like I I view this as as frankly the golden age of the of the solo advisor, with the caveat that that's great when you're a solo, like truly a solo, and you just use the technology to get more and more efficient so you don't have to hire more staff. But if you want to grow, it's actually the growth stage where to me in many ways it gets it gets even more painful to try to do it yourself and without someone that provides some back office services support because the like the solo gets more and more efficient as the technology comes along but if you want to grow and scale a multi-billion dollar firm you ain't solving that with technology alone you have to hire a whole bunch of people and people are expensive and hard to scale and it's really messy early on. You know, when you go from three staff members to four staff members and your headcount increases by 33% and your overhead increases by 33%, it's really expensive to hire another person. And outsource providers that just are, are much easier for you to manage with a variable cost because I just buy the time that I need and it's it's your problem You know, at BAM to figure out how to do that scalably across 140 plus firms. To me, it's it's I'm fascinated by the the outsourcing potential in call it like the the mid market segment. Not that it's not handy to do it as a solo advisor, so there's just less to worry about. But the more tech comes along, the the more the tech will just do it for you, and you'll probably even need a little bit less in back office services, unless you're growing yep. and trying to scale. Huh. So, so you just actually well articulated one of my kind of like favorite views on the future of the industry, and I'll kind of tease it out just because uh, it's fun to talk about and and bat this you know uh, back and forth a bit. Which is, I really believe I, I'm not one of these guys who who's you know going to declare the the death of the solo proprietor, you know, sole pr- practitioner, so, you know, solo proprietor, sole proprietor. I similarly believe that there is absolutely a future for these folks. I think some of them are some of the best wealth advisors I've ever seen. Great planners just don't want to run a business, right? And in contrast, you know, there is this is also the golden age of the start of, or so maybe it's not the golden age. Maybe it's the start of of a golden age of the the large scaled firm, right? This has been a cottage fragmented industry, thousands upon thousands of these small independent firms that, and, and now it sure seems like there's some bigger business trends and, and, and things that are occurring. So, so I think that we're going to be this barbelled industry, right? I think you're going to have the really successful, great solo wealth advisors, and then a lot of, or maybe not a lot, but, but a handful of really successful large firms. I think being stuck in the middle is where things are going to get really challenging. Again, not that you're in trouble, 
But I think the $200 million, the $300 million, the $500 million firm has a decision to make. Not the solo firm, not the large firm, right? The large firm has decided to be an enterprise. They've decided to invest. They've decided to create career paths. They've decided to dedicate resources to just the investment process, to just the client experience, and they will continue to get better. The sole proprietors are really, really good practitioners on average who've said, hey, I don't want to deal with any of those headaches. And they do have solutions today. They have TAMPs, they have technology. And I think that those the cost of all of that continues to come down and be much more accessible. I think it becomes those those multi-advisor firms that, that do have staffs that say, who do we want to be when we grow up? And they've got to, over the coming years, make a decision. And if they want to be a lifestyle firm, meaning that they're not going to keep growing and investing for the future, then that may be okay, but it probably won't be great for your team members or for your clients in the long run. But if they want to become the large firm, then you know what? They've got to devote time, energy, and oh, by the way, money, capital to doing that. And that's hard to take a step back, to take many steps forward. So it's just a really interesting dynamic that I love chatting about. You know, I know you've got strong feelings on this too. So it should be fun to see how it plays out over the over the next decade or so. Yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, I I I call this the the deadly middle. That you know, clearly there's a subset of very large firms like what you guys are doing and Colony and United Capital and Edelman and Creative Planning and, and a bunch of others that are at these like 10, 20, 30 billion dollar AUM levels. And for a lot of them, like as they're getting to this point, their growth rates are accelerating. You know, they kind of slowed for a while and now for a bunch of these firms, their growth rates are actually picking up. Yep. And you know, when in theory it's supposed to get harder to grow when you get big because the denominator gets so big. But yep, they're they're actually getting a, a a lift because they're in the truest sense, they're starting to see economies of scale around marketing and client acquisition, around how they're executing growth, all the internal dynamics of just operating the firm and managing overhead. So, you know, large there's a subset of large firms that are really running like lasting enterprises and are just growing and scaling their way through it as, as quick as they effectively can. We have the other end of the spectrum, the the solo advisor that's never been more profitable than they are today. You know, there are solo firms out there that are doing three, four, five hundred thousand dollars of revenue or more and taking home like 75 to 85 cents on the dollar, just <laughs> ludicrously high margins. It's like Four or five hundred thousand of revenue and an admin assistant and a bunch of technology, just amazing efficiencies. If you can get a a reasonably affluent set of clientele, and then there's this deadly middle that seems to be somewhere like you can get slightly beyond just what you do as a solo and hire like two or three staff members that support you. Maybe you've got a para planner and a a full time admin assistant, maybe a little bit of part time help. And I see some firms like that that get up to even a hundred plus million dollars under, under management. But then, if you start getting much larger than that, you get you get north of about one hundred and fifty, and certainly up towards two hundred million dollars. You hit this inflection point where the business can't grow unless it truly grows beyond you, and you have to start hiring 
very expensive advisor staff members who want high compensation. And then if they do well, they also want a piece of the pie, right? They, they want to become partners. And you've got all these staffing demands on you as the organization gets more complex and profit margins tend to get compressed. And it was the striking thing to me, I think it was the, the 2015 advisor benchmarking study was the first time this really showed up that partners in billion dollar firms had the same take-home pay as the most profitable solo advisors. Yep. And basically everyone between a hundred million and a billion made less money than if they just stayed at a hundred million and got efficient. <laughs> now the flip side at least is you do have an entity that's getting more valuable. So someday you get a liquidity event maybe on the back end that kicks up that cumulative lifetime income a bit. But truly like partners in billion dollar firms were had no better average income per partner than successful profitable solos and and that was a few years ago i feel like the the more time that goes by the higher that threshold gets you know our our advisory firm is now closing in on 2 billion dollars under management we're like 1 1.9 something uh as of the last number that I saw. And even as we closed in on 2 billion, like I joined when we were under 200 million. So I've seen 10x growth. Yep. And even now, all, all I can see it at closing on 2 billion is like, man, if if we could get to 3 billion, I think we could finally have the resources to do all the stuff that I wish we could <laughs> do in the firm. And it's really depressing to me to have come this far of reinvesting into the firm only to find that even as we're getting here, like you just the larger the business gets, the more new pain points that crop up and you continue to have new resources that you want to invest into. And it's it's a really tough haul. And so some people are just hardwired as entrepreneurs. Like this stuff is fun. Yeah, it's challenging. It's got stresses, but like it's fun to solve these problems and figure them out and make the grow, business grow bigger and be more successful and like more power to the entrepreneurs that are wired that way. But you know, for everyone else, like this valley between 200 million and a billion becomes really challenging and, and kind of dark for some firm owners. I mean, I think that's part of why we're literally seeing an uptick in the amount of merger and acquisition activity happening for firms in that in that deadly middle, because there really are a lot of partners there just getting the point of saying, you know, I, I just want to get back to those three things you mentioned, right? Like relationships, planning, growing the business. That was the fun stuff. That's why I got into this in the first place. It's not so I could spend 80% of my time managing other people who do relationships planning or growing the business. Right. Like I, I want to get back to that and get out of this this tough, deadly middle zone. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree more with kind of uh, your view on this. And, you know, I, I think the other thing I would say is sometimes you just got to decide what you want to be when you grow up, right? So, you know, I always think about this, which is, a lot of people got into this business to help others, right? So they started out being great wealth advisors and they had this vision of working with one client at a time to help them achieve their goals and objectives. And along the way, they took on this responsibility to provide for the lives of, uh, of families. So, you know, their team, their client base got larger and they just have to decide, which is when is enough enough and where do they actually get the most enjoyment? And so I think, you know, what we have built is intended to be something 
that allows people to have the best of both worlds. If they want to truly be that entrepreneur, great. Partner with us on the BAM Advisor Services side. If they want to be at a place where they, where we have solved a whole lot of things that they don't have to keep beating their heads up against the wall again about, where they get the benefit of team and collaboration, where they get to go back to really just being great advisors and knowing that their that their people and their clients have career or their people have career paths and their clients are going to be well served by like minded folks who share similar values then maybe Buckingham is the right place for them. But again, at some point, these advisors and these owners of advisory firms have to figure out where they get their energy and what moves the needle for them. And and, and, and there's no judgment in that, right? I just happen to personally really love the the stuff that we are doing to build this organization. And I get energy from that. I like, I don't like growth for growth's sake. I like growth for the opportunities it provides. I like growth for making us a better organization. And I truly believe that those things are happening day by day. And, you know, that's kind of what gets me up in the morning. You know, and again, other things get other people up in the morning. Yeah, I, I you know, for me, it wasn't even as much as I lived through the growth cycle at Pinnacle, you know, I, I think I was like employee number nine or so, and we were closing it on two hundred million, and now we're we're closing it on two billion, and we're fifty five plus employees. It, it, it for me, it wasn't actually until we we started doing the growth cycle in in XY Planning Network, where we've got all these team members. You know, our, our average employee at XYPN is actually much younger than the the average employee in an advisory firm. Because we have a lot of folks in their twenties and thirties, and you know, we have all these great, upwardly mobile, awesome people, and I look at it and I just say, like, like oh my god, if 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 we can't maintain the growth of the firm, I'm going to lose these awesome people because they're just going to go to another place that gives them more opportunities. Like I, I'd I'd never really felt the pressure around like the pressure being a business owner to grow for the sake of your people until we got a really big group of young people that have really long career time horizons and and just saying like if, if we can't double the size of the business in 5 years and give them a whole bunch of new opportunities that come when the business is twice the size we we won't be able to keep our people yep well, and and I was my my story is one. I was super blessed, right? I, I had a founding generation that wanted to grow because they thought they were helping folks, and then once they achieved levels of success, their their desire for growth had nothing to do with their own personal situations. It was all about creating the that opportunity for folks like me and, and 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 my fellow colleagues that next generation and it's strange in my 30s still um, and I, I can hold on to that for a few more months that uh, you know I'm finding myself feeling the same way it, it's incredible pressure if we're being candid but it's also an incredible like opportunity to create an organization that is rich with opportunities where people can achieve their personal and professional goals 
goals that <laughs> that that ultimately they may even be able to have higher levels of success than the, the generations before them. And um, by the way, I mean if you can create a business that is like that, that 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 has that sustainability, that has that opportunity, you know, I, I think you can feel you know count yourself pretty fortunate. And and I know that that's kind of the way I'm I'm starting to look at life a little bit more, which is some of the success we're having and the growth we're having. Well, I certainly benefit from it. It's produced more jobs. It's pr- produced more career paths than I ever even thought of. And, and that's, that gives me a, a tremendous amount of joy every single year looking at the people that have, that have progressed, how, however that's defined. So how do you look at career tracks and ladders within a, a firm at the size that Buckingham and, and, and BAM are like, is there a giant ladder of positions, uh, all over the firm? Like you're a, an associate and then a wealth manager, and then you move up the line or like your investment ops and then investment analyst and then a, a portfolio manager and you move up the line. Like, do, do you have, like, do you build ladder tracks like that in a firm your size or, does it look different because you're you're growing so quickly that like half the positions you're going to have in five years don't even exist right now because though but they won't exist until your firm doubles in size in five years and then the <laughs> positions will be there. Like yeah. how do you, how do you look at the the growth cycles that way and 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 how you actually formulate these into career tracks for your team? Is it okay for me to answer both? <laughs> so sure. we, 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 we have both. We absolutely have clearly defined ladders, guidelines that, that help people if they know truly what they want to be to get to that point. But at the same time, that's the most fun thing, which is all of that can also get ripped up in any given year. And uh, when you are a growing organization and new stuff is happening, because the roles that exist today that we didn't even have last year, or the roles that will exist tomorrow that we're not even yet thinking about, continue to pop up. And so, you know, when you're a small independent wealth management firm and back office in St. Louis, it's one thing. You, you certainly have more job types than many other organizations, and there's some opportunity to move back and forth through there. When you have 20 locations across the country now, and the number of team members, and, and again, the momentum, uh, we can certainly talk about kind of what's on the, what's in the pipeline for us. But, but, you know, we will do a number of transactions this year. After doing a number of transactions last year, we will onboard some very large BAM firms this year. After onboarding some very large BAM firms last year, we will have strong organic growth this year, already off to a great start. And, you know, for perspective, think about that. When we have organic growth, you know, we, we used to love the years where you could shout from the rooftops, you had 20, 30% organic growth, right? Non-mar- non-market organic growth, like real organic growth. Think about that. When you're 13 billion and maybe 15 billion on the Buckingham Strategic Wealth side at the end of this year, if you're growing 10% per year per year organically, you're growing a billion dollar RIA every single year. It's a little right? depressing. Yeah. It, do you know how many years it took us to hit a billion dollars? Um, you know, we hit we hit that in like 2006, 2007 on the Buckingham side. And we've been in business since 1994. So, and now 
we're growing a billion dollars organically, you know, every year. So it's it's staggering to think about. So so to answer your question, both. Uh, we absolutely have career paths and career tracks that that we've put in place that we think are really important for for folks to have an understanding of how they achieve what they want to achieve. But at the same time, it's pretty cool to tap people on the shoulder and say, hey, I know you're not thinking about this, but you're a great wealth advisor, but how would you like to go lead an office in Houston, Texas? Or, hey, you've really demonstrated an ability to train and develop your wealth management staff. How would you like to take a broader leadership role within the organization, helping other teams to do that well? Or, hey, you've been a planner, you've been an advisor, you've been a rainmaker, you've been a thought leader. How would you like to be our director of advisor development? And so those are the types of things that pop up. And the cool thing also is, again, we have two sides of our business. And we have people move back and forth, Buckingham and BAM. And and I think that adds a lot of not just cool experience and exposure for our team members, but I think it benefits our end clients as well. So so how do you look at the the growth? And you know, so as you said, like you've um, organic growth gets harder at some point just from the sheer size of how big that denominator is in order to make a growth rate compelling, right? Like a... Uh, 3% growth on $30 billion is making a new billion dollar RIA every year now. Yep. So, you know, I know you guys as as many firms out there have handled this in part by going down the the inorganic path, which is the the world of acquiring advisory firms to grow. And and I feel like this is something that's been very popular across the the industry, right? Like uh I forget what the number was, but but like uh, a bunch of the surveys now basically said something effectively like the majority of large advisory firms are all interested in acquiring other advisory firms to accelerate their uh, their growth rate. You know, you guys, I, I were maybe a little bit earlier to that than some of the others, but lots of firms are doing it now. So how do you, how do you look at the 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 mergers and acquisitions marketplace today? Like how how do you think about that in the context of a thirty four billion dollar firm that's trying to drive profits and growth in a competitive environment. Sure. So I'll make a pretty bold statement and say that if you are looking at inorganic growth strategies solely for growth, you should not do them unless you are, you know, an investment bank, unless that is the only thing that you do. If you are looking at inorganic growth strategies to add talent, to add capabilities, to add geographic expansion, you know, to help create scale, to help, again, deal, you know, as I mentioned talent, but to help deal with succession as well, that those are the kinds of viable strategic reasons that need to accompany pure financial and growth goals. And I think that that often gets missed. I think why whatever the figure is, you know, whether it's 85% or 70% or 60%, who knows, it's a large percentage of firms out there that are saying, hey, we want to grow. We too can raise our hand and say, we're open to buying a wealth management firm. Just let us know if you want to sell. So I I mean, what's what's wrong with that, right? Like I'm, I just know a lot of firms out there, I think particularly some in that 
deadly middle that are feeling the pressure of like, we got to be bigger to, to try to hopefully get some new economies of scale. Like what's wrong with the, you the know, pure the economic $500 million dollar firm that's like, Hey, you know, there's a firm in our area. It's like $120 million. And, you know, this would add well to our size. And, you know, we, we'd, we'd grow by 10 or 20% by bringing them in and, you know, we can make the cash flow work and, and, uh, Oh, we got some staff infrastructure already. I think we can do this. Like, what what's what's wrong with them trying to do that growth so that they can so that they can grow? Yeah. So, so what I would say is, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just making the argument, I guess, that it needs to be accompanied by other strategic reasons as well, because the risk to your business of doing this wrong the amount of time, energy, and effort to do this right, the resources that are required to actually onboard and integrate, you know, are so significant that a firm of that size and scale cannot afford to be wrong, cannot afford to take that step to onboard a $100 million, you know, firm and waste multiple years and, you know, and not be able to fully integrate, not add talent, not get some capabilities, not get something beyond the math. And I think that actually it's funny, I, I just used a phrase beyond the math. Two of my great colleagues, uh, Dave Levin, who's who's our president, he runs and, and chief operating officer, he runs the place day to day. And Shannon o- O'Toole, who's our chief talent officer, have actually started this presentation they call beyond the math because so many acquirers out there just their eyes get big about the dollars their eyes get big about you know the the, the headlines their eyes get big about you know telling this sexy story of M&A and they don't fully comprehend how challenging inorganic growth strategies truly executing them well can be and again i would argue how very dangerous they are you know, this is something that can blow up your core business. And so, again, if you're just looking at it primarily for economic reasons, I would tread very lightly. I would, I would, I would have my caution flag up. So what, what goes wrong? So first of all, you know, I think that there need to really be a handful of, of, of core things for it to go right, which is there's got to be cultural alignment. There's got to be ideological alignment. There's got to be service model alignment. And both parties have to bring something to the table. So you've got to make them better. They have to help your organization in some way too. And, you know, if somebody is willing to transact, if somebody is willing to come together, then, you know, then they are going, you know, these are folks that have been entrepreneurs their entire lives. And very practically, you know, they are going to have very strong feelings about how things should work and your client experience and technology and, you know, every, you know, everything in between. And so the answer is there is a tremendous amount that can go wrong. We've got a 1400 line checklist. We always tease about it's very real uh, of topics and things that must be discussed prior to closing a transaction. So this is not just simply, you know, coming up with a fair price and signing some legal documents. Although I think a lot of folks wish that it was that simple. This is, uh, this is just like you would do for end investor clients. This is really heavy discovery, making sure you fully understand, you know, their business model, their client experience, you know, the expectations that are going in, making sure that you have laid out how everything works in your world. 
and ultimately delivering a solution that really is a win-win-win. It's a win for the end investor. It's a win for for the team members, and it's a win for ultimately the owner or the shareholders as well. And in theory, like ideally in that order. So, you know, I, I, I could spend days talking about all the things that could go wrong. Hopefully, some of that is 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 an easier to digest recipe for, um, you know, how to actually think about that. And 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 I, I again, I don't mean to wax poetic too much on this, but you know, over the years, we've had to build out a dedicated transactions team. We've had to build out a dedicated onboarding and integration team, resources that are fully focused on on actually doing this right. And I think you know, knock on wood. It's why we've never had to actually unwind a wealth management transaction. And again, I think that uh, it's a testament to the process that we've gone through. It's a testament to how seriously we take it. It is also a testament to the idea that we're only going to partner with folks where one plus one can equal three. So. so I know the other challenge that comes up for a lot of firms that are looking at this kind of merger activity is is just literally like, where do you come up with the cash to like do the deal? You know, there are a lot more lenders in the space than there were a couple of years ago, including you know folks like Live Oak Bank that are are sort of specializing in financial advisor mergers and acquisitions. But you, know, you guys do a lot of these deals. I mean, you did what? How many? How many deals did you do like this last year? We did six transactions last year. Yep. Okay. So you know you're. You're buying a firm every other month on average <laughs> through, throughout the year. How do you manage the cash flow for this? Is it just the the reality is after the first thirty billion dollars, there's just kind of enough cash around in the <laughs> in the margins to to write checks for firms that that may be sizable. You know, you can spend your lifetime making a an advisory firm that's uh, fifty million, a hundred million, two hundred million, three hundred million relative to the size relative to you guys. Like those are still very small firms that maybe are are just manageable to cash flow the deals at some point but what it, what is that buying activity look like for for firms like yours how do you just manage all the cash flow of these acquisitions sure so yeah i will share that the larger you get the less burdensome uh managing that that becomes but i once heard from an advisor that the only thing they want in life is an unfair advantage and I like that phrase. I thought that was pretty clever. And in many ways, and certainly a, another topic we can talk about, you know, I have a little bit of an unfair advantage in this inorganic growth strategy space that a lot of other firms simply do not have. And that was back in 2007, we ourselves went through a transaction with uh, a firm that many folks probably listening know the name of. It's called Focus Financial Partners, one of the leading um, solution providers kind of in the industry. So with that solution, I was armed with what amounts to unlimited capital to do this for firms that, you know, make sense uh, to join forces with paid, you know, the dollars available by focus at no interest and paid back over a period of time. So Again, I tease around that, you know, that, that, that I have that unfair advantage, but it's pretty real actually, which is I've got a partner that does this for a living. They provide me with as much capital as I need. They allow me to 
be entrepreneurial and do what is in the best interest of my business. They have a phrase that they use often that I think is so wonderful that they don't turn entrepreneurs into employees. And, you know, I certainly can attest to that. And they give us that capital at such wonderful rates that that we in turn can go out and utilize it in effective ways. Now, here's the other cool thing. We don't have quotas. We don't have organ- inorganic growth strat- you know, strategy goals. We are only partnering with firms that we really believe are like-minded and aligned with us and that really will be good match matches. We just happen to have you know, another benefit, which is there's a lot of firms out there that believe in the way that we believe, the practice in the way that we practice, that know we have this capital, that know we have this expertise, that know we have these resources. And combine that with the demographics of what everybody is seeing in the industry and that everybody writes about and talks about so often, we're the recipient of a lot of conversations, calls to join forces. And it's it's a pretty powerful combination. And it's it's proved itself out to be, you know, pretty successful over the past few years. And I don't see that trend really uh, stopping anytime soon. In fact, I would tell you that the calls are, are, are picking up and, um, you know, we just, we just want to really make sure that we do this right. That it's with those types of firms that are good fits and that we never stretch. We never think about joining forces with folks that, you know, where all of those core elements are not there. You know, as, as someone that runs some businesses and has gone through the world of financing and trying to raise capital myself, you all, I'll admit my my ears perked up a little there when when you mentioned dollars at no interest. <laughs> so, help me understand a little bit more about how this how the, how this deal structure works. Like how. How do you just get access to borrow money from Focus at zero? I mean, if only because I'm assuming at some point they kind of want to make their return on investment as well. So this has to come back to them somehow. So like, how does how does a deal work in the context of being a, a firm under the Focus umbrella? Great, great question. And and so a lot of people always are very curious about this, right? Because you hear a lot of people in the industry talking about, well, they're not patient capital because they've got private equity behind them, or they, you know, do they really let you let entrepreneurs, you know, not feel like employees? Do they really provide all of these inorganic growth strategy benefits? Do they really have expertise to help you build out your infrastructure and, you know, and the leveraging power that they'll talk about. And the answer to all of that, from my experience, is is yes and. So you asked specifically about the capital, which is, you know, that is one of the clearly defined things that Focus is very transparent about. They're transparent about everything, but, but this is one that they will say to you, if you are a firm that is simply just looking for a succession solution, you may or may not be the right fit for us. We have to explore further. But if you are a firm that is looking for a succession for you know solution and you have a desire to be bigger and better than a, the current version of yourself, we can help you. We can arm you. And this is, you know, the tra- the 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 M&A expertise, the legal and regulatory counsel that they provide that goes along with that, the capital, the capital rates and the capital structure, 
it's all just part of their offering and it's very real. And I know you had Michael Nathanson, you know, on the podcast a few months ago, and he and I are two of the folks that have just simply taken advantage of that. Now, by the way, you can't deploy the capital, nor should you deploy the capital in inefficient or irresponsible ways, right? It's still on us as leaders of businesses to really do that thorough due diligence to really make sure that these are the right fits. Because guess what? When you've got all this capital that you can deploy, you know, it can be exciting and sexy, but it's it's one of these things where we're able to deploy it when and if we see the right fit. And we've just been very fortunate to have a lot of firms, you know, that we've either known from, you know, over the years or, or, or have gotten to know over the past few years that have been good partners to deploy that capital too. And so that that's my unfair advantage, actually, in this inorganic growth strategy, which is focus. So help me understand a little bit more, though, just like, I'm just trying to understand how the math of all this works. Like your, you know, Buckingham and BAM sits on its own, yep. focus owns a piece of you. You borrow money from them at 0% rates, but then they want you to do it because if you grow successfully, they get a percentage of your profits because they're owners in you. And like, that's how they get the ROI on their capital. I mean, is, the, is that sort of the, yeah. the mechanics of the structure? Yeah, I would actually say that's exactly the way to think about it. And if you think about a partnership, right, each party should bring something to the table. And so what do we bring to the table? Well, we're going to run this thing. We're going to do a lot of the work to put this together and to manage it, both the process as well as, you know, then after the fact, after closing. And what are they bringing to the table? They're bringing to get to the table capital, deal know-how. Oftentimes, they're even introducing us to, to opportunities, and that's their contribution. So, so that's why I think this has worked out so well, and it's why I'm such a big fan of their model, which is... That's they, they really operate in the spirit of partnership. They know what we bring to, to to the table, and they match that, you know, through this approach. And and again, I think a lot of people have the same reaction you do, which is, oh come on, like is that real? Is that true? And the answer is absolutely. And so they 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 arm all of their firms to grow in this way, if that's their vision. Again, Michael Nathanson and I just happen to be two of the folks within the. Uh, within the partnership that have taken, you know, maybe even more advantage of it than others. And so, um, and pl to plan on doing so for the foreseeable future as well. So I, I know there's also a lot of discussion out there around deals with firms like Focus of just, you know, so the flip side, hey, the good news is you get access to capital at, you know, you know cheap rates of zero, you know, asterisk, Except they want a slice of your equity, like that's part of the trade off, right? So you know you can you can grow the portion of the pie you get to keep, but they want a portion of the pie. That's part of the 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 terms of having access to the to the capital. But uh, there's a lot of discussion out there as well of you know, but but they take these preferential profits interests, and you know it can be really bad for the firm if if you can't grow enough. Like how does that side of the the transaction work when when focus buys into a firm like yours in the first place. Yeah, so it's a great question, and we we may actually be a model example of how this works in good and bad times. Okay, 
So if you think about the timing of our transaction, which was 2007, what happened the next two years, right? We, we went straight into the global financial crisis. So Focus purchased a large portion of our cash flow. And we went straight into 08 and 09. And believe me, that is the test of partnership, is how people perform. When, know, the, when, 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 when the blank hits the fan. Yep, absolutely. Again, uh, you know, yep. certainly want to be respectful to your podcast listeners. But yes, um, some, yeah, some people listen with kids in the car. So when, when the, when the blank right. hits the fan. Yep. When, the, when the proverbial X Hits the fan. So they absolutely have a preference on our cash flow, which again is why you have to be thoughtful and sensible about the partnership structure, right? You should only sell off enough cash flow that you're comfortable selling off that both uh, achieves your personal goals and objectives and yet at the same time sets up the next generation for success that they still can have a big slice of the pie. You have to be fully aware that markets do go up and down. And you've got to be able to be able to be lean and be and be smart when when things are bad. And you have to have a partner that works with you when times are not always great. And so I can always shout from the rooftops. I had a partner in focus that wasn't in my office in 08 and 09 asking our leadership team what they can cut. They were instead asking the question of, you know, how are you preparing for when times turn around? What conversations are you having? What are you doing with your clients? What might you need as it relates to capital to go out and do certain things, whether it was infrastructure related or whether it was inorganic growth perspective, which is they took a longer view. They took a partnership view. I got to see that firsthand in 08 and 09. Now, by the way, did that mean that they waived their preference? Of course not. Who? I, I, nor should we have expected them to do so. We did a transaction with them walking in eyes fully wide open that our cash flow might go down if things turned around. But what's the, what's the other you know, part of that equation, which is our owners sold at all-time highs. They wanted the benefit of the forward-looking market and the heights of the market. They had to be prepared for... So they had cash sitting on the sidelines, but they also had to be prepared for lean times. So, so you can't always, you know, you know, have the best of both worlds. We just wanted to make sure that we were walking in eyes wide open and understood how it worked. We got hit with 08 and 09. And you know what? We took advantage after that as things settled down of all of that, you know, all of the great benefit that I kind of have already shared about our partnership with Focus. And, and grew faster than we had ever grown before. So, you know, we benefited greatly there. And now, if you are one of these organizations that sells to grow or sells to be, you know, something better than your previous version of yourself, then things like preferences don't ultimately matter when you start directionally going that way. So we are so far beyond our preference because we took advantage of the of the solutions and resources that Focus made available, that we haven't talked about that, um, you know, in you know so many years. Now, by the way, I would say firms that are uh, that are looking to sell, but don't have a mindset to to do anything after that, they should think about the deal structure. They should think about whether that's the right model for them. I still will argue, you know, that there's that there are definite benefits of it, but. You just walk in eyes wide open. 
So can you, I don't know, like, can I, can I kind of walk through maybe a, a hypothetical example with, with general numbers? Just, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I understand how these, like how these deals work. So, sure. like, so imagine I've got a firm that has say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a couple hundred million dollars. I got like three or four million dollars of revenue. I've got a million dollars of profits because I think that'll make the the math nice and round and easy. So like, so I got a million dollars of net profits. I mean, we're running twenty five percent margins on a four million dollar revenue of a half billion dollar firm. So I yep. So I got a million dollars of profits, and I say I'm I'm going to do a deal with Focus for twenty percent. Okay. So. So Focus now takes 20% of my business. They effectively have the, you know, the, the rights to 20% of my profits. Now, the nature of this preferential profits interest, like am I thinking about it correctly to say what – so what they're really going to buy is not 20% of my profits per se. What they're going to buy is a $200,000 you know, uh, 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 rights to the first $200,000 of the profits because it was – 20% as of when we mark the deal, but they've got a preferential interest. And so every year going forward, like they get the first 200, or I guess they get the first 20% up to 200, and then I get the rest. Like, how does how does this play out yeah, over no, I time then? Yeah. So I think that's exactly the right way to, to look at it, which is they might buy, uh, you might look at it as a percentage to start, but it really is a, it really is a dollar amount. And so if, if you did a transaction and the, and the markets went against you and, you know, a million dollars becomes 800,000, then the reality is they're, they're getting 200,000 of 800,000, right? So, so the percentage has increased, the dollar amount is stuck, but at the same time, you know, we like to think over the long term and when a when a million becomes 2 million you know they are practically getting 20% of that and they have fueled your opportunity to get farther so, faster so, is the way we look at so it so if it, so if i'm and i mean this is just part of the trade off the capital right so so if i'm down they take their 200 first i get whatever's left which means i actually end up eating more than you know, they end up taking more than 20% of my profits in that scenario. If we grow yep. up, like if my million of profits goes to 2 million, they just get their 20% interest. So now they're, they're going to get 400 because we doubled the profits, but I'm, I'm also not taking 1.6 million because I, I keep the other 80%. So they, they, yep. they get a percentage when it's up, they get basically a fixed dollar floor. If it's down, that's just, that's the deal. How That's how the structure works. Yep. Absolutely. And, and again, think about this as well, which is, you know, if you are successful, if you are large enough to be on Focus's radar, the reality is an internal transition plan <laughs> is going to require you to wait many, 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 many years to ultimately get paid out, right? If you have to go to a bank, you have a bank as a partner, right? With its own issues and, 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 and structure challenges. If you go to other you know, capital providers, again, there's always pros and cons. I think Focus's model is very straightforward. I think it is very simple. And I can share from experience, it, it enabled us to have the kind of growth numbers that we shared. I, I, I actually, I don't know if I've shared this yet, which is I always love to, to kind of share. We, we were a little over a billion on the Buckingham Strategic Wealth side back in 2007. At the end of this year, with transactions and a little bit of organic growth, we should hit 15 billion. Okay. So 
you know, so you're, you're, you went from a billion to 15 billion in a little over 10 years because that's what yep. happens when you get kind of an open checkbook at zero percent interest rates. Off yep. you go. And so I guess like somewhere out there on the ledger, there's still like the math of what 20% on the profits of a billion or whatever your percentage was, but like whatever 20% of the profits on a billion was all the way back in 2007. Like there's there's still some watermark out there where if you ever actually manage to fall below that. Suddenly, they they their preferential interest kicks in again. But short of that, just they own X percent of you. They get X percent of the profits in exchange. You get access to their capital to just accelerate the growth. Absolutely, and 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 the and the way I like to think about this, and I don't know if this is helpful again to some of your listeners, is at some point if you are successful, you are going to have some partner, right? So most folks initially think about it being an internal partner. You know, again, pros and cons of that. You know, it's certainly a very provincial, paternalistic type of a solution. But we know that some of the capital constraints, again, that success creates more challenges. Just wait for that, you know, situation where one of the owners wants to exit and one or two others aren't yet ready and figure out if you can agree on valuation on deal terms, see if you can, you know, figure out financing and all of the rights and securities, no matter what your operating agreement may, may say, it becomes a very interesting situation. I've seen it many and many times. And then again, you, you can think about, you can, you can certainly go for some of the top dollar, you know, buyers, but those have implications entrepreneurs do become employees the path ahead for team members and 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 elements that were really important to you about made unique and special uh, can certainly always you know come into question and so i think recognizing being a young person like i was recognizing that i was going to have a partner at some point and that i couldn't solve the issue and the challenge of the capital stack of my founding generation alone, nor did I want to mortgage my future to solve that. Think about had I done that in 2007. Think if I had somehow figured out a way to put the same deal focus put together for us and did that. The mother of all internal leverage buyout succession plans. Yep. And certainly, certainly, uh, you know, at the time in this space. And then I had been confronted by 2008 and 2009. What, what would have occurred? Would, would I even, would, would, would a $34 billion financial services organization even be in existence anymore? Think about that. I mean, it's pretty crazy to, to digest. So once I could get over the hump, uh, or the hurdle of realizing I was going to have some partner and I just wanted it to be a partner that shared my values, that brought something to the table and that allowed me the opportunity to continue to run the organization, create opportunity for our next gen and didn't change our client experience in any way. Like that's everybody's dream, right? And if they provide you with inorganic growth strategies and expertise and infrastructure strategies and expertise and a community of partners, firms that share and try to help each other. Oh, and by the way, unlimited capital, 0% interest financing and, you know, and fair deal structures, you know, like I couldn't be happier as I sit here today. And again, I, this isn't a sales pitch. This is just telling my story and, you know, really trying to, to, to bring a real case study to light. Well, it is a strange 
strange is the wrong word. Like it, it is a unique perspective to me of, I, I think a lot of advisors, I mean, if you're focused around building a business, like truly building a business, a lasting enterprise that lasts beyond you, then it quickly becomes apparent. The only way to effectively do that is to truly allow the business to grow beyond you, which means you need other great people on board. You need employees, you need future leaders, and and often you end out needing a partner of some sort. But I feel like most of us, like when we talk about finding a partner, we talk about like, hey, I'd like to find another advisor who has some clients. Or like, <laughs> I'd like to find an advisor who's kind of good at like operation stuff because I'm really good at the client relationship stuff. We don't often think of partners as I really wish I had someone who had access to hundreds of millions of dollars at 0% <laughs> interest. Yep. Which maybe just speaks to, you know, there's a, a lot of different kinds of business owners and entrepreneurs that come to the table with different views around what's a what's a good partner, but I just like it's it's an interesting thing to me that you just, you know, most of us you when we talk about finding a partner, we talk about finding a person with a complementary skill set and you use partner in a very different context, a very different framing when you apply it to partnering with an entity like Focus and the stuff that they collectively bring to the table. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it that, that's an interesting call out. I think I've never really thought about it that way, but but I absolutely do. And and it really goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is so much of this depends on what you want to be when you grow up and how you want to define the career path and the type of organization that you want to build. And so if you are a sole practitioner, a solo advisor, you have the opportunity to, you know, to define partner in a in a much more normal way. It's an individual. It's a person. When you want to have an organization that's just simply a little bit different than that, then I think you have the opportunity to define partner in much broader ways. And I, I'd like to believe more strategic. Again, no judgment, said with no judgment, but I, our founding generation was very purposeful about the partner that they, you know, ultimately positioned us to arms with for, for the generations to come. So you know, you've talked about like this was a... This was a transition event in part because you had a a founding group of partners who needed a transition of their own by 2007. I mean, you guys were what? You were founded in the 90s? Yep. Uh, nine, 94. Yep. 94. So, you know, you had a, a set of partners that did this for 13 years. A subset of them wanted out and to be done. You had a firm that was already a a billion dollars in the core. So, you know, a, a good, valuable firm. And, and, you know, while, while today we see a lot of firms that are, well, 10, 20, you guys are at $30 billion under management in, in total. Like back in 2007, like being a billion dollar firm was like, that was the thing. That was the number. Like you, you, if you got to a billion dollars in the mid 2000 cycle, like you had arrived, you were one of the leaders, one of the very select few. Well, and, and I should, and, and I should share that Buckingham was a billion then. Our TAMP BAM was about five billion then. So, okay. um, so, so, so you were actually six combined. Yes. Yeah, so six combined, and, and so again, that also should hopefully give people perspective, yeah. which is you know Buckingham, you know, will go from a billion to roughly fifteen at the end of this year. Um, BAM five, you know, uh, to twenty today. We'll see what it is, you know, at the end of the year. But um, 
yeah. So so we we were certainly we were certainly large for two thousand and seven. So you've got this subset of founding partners, some of whom wanted out, and I know like a few of your founders, you know, they had done other things in the industry for a long time before they came to founding Buckingham. So you you weren't founded by a bunch of twenty somethings <laughs> who were getting out in their thirties. Like you were founded by a number of fifty somethings who were getting out because they were sixty something by the mid two thousands and and you know ready to have a liquidity event for this this great thing that they'd built. So I so I get like. You know, they had an industry-leading firm that they were ready to to cash out of. You had Focus coming to the table as one of the early players that said, hey, we will give liquidity events for some of these founders that want out if they've got some next-generation leadership that wants to come in and take over. And, you know, as you said, like, we don't want to turn entrepreneurs into employees. We'll let you guys keep running your firm, but we'll help make this liquidity event happen. So I I get why they why some of them wanted out. I I get why Focus was interested in the deal. I understand that at some point, like literally, if the founders are going to retire, someone has to come back in and 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 take over the business. But like, help me understand how thirty-two year old you <laughs> ends out being the guy to suddenly step in and take over a combined six billion dollar AUM firm. Like, how does a thirty-two year old land in that position? A lot of luck. And incredible good looks. No, Fantastic. Uh, no, I yeah, hey, if they work for you, rely on them. Hey, man. This, this is podcast, so they can't see. So uh, you know, they they can just uh, they can just imagine. Yeah, but we're we're gonna we're gonna put it we're gonna put a picture on this oh, podcast. Here we go. Out, so they're, they're gonna they're gonna see your smiling face when they uh, when they download this episode. So, uh, no, I've, you, you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> so only teasing, of course. So 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 actually, it's the story is even better as time goes by, the more I think about it. So so first of all, one really interesting data point is my founders weren't in, necessarily all in their 50s when they started. They, they weren't in their 20s or 30s either, but a lot of them were in their mid to upper 40s. Okay. So think about this, which is they weren't actually at an age where they necessarily all had to do something. So, so some, some like you had a mixture of ages. Some we did. Some had to do something, others didn't. But once anybody needs to do something, it kind of forces the issue for everyone. Well, it certainly forces the conversation. But what I will what I will share, and this is why I think our story is so cool, is our founding generation: Bert Schweitzer, Montlevy, Larry Swedro, Ed Goldberg. You know, the, the, and the list. Stuart Zimmerman. The list of of, of great folks uh, goes on. Uh, Bob Gelman, uh, uh, of people that that really started this firm and built it over the years, they took this step, not because they necessarily had to, but because they wanted to. They said, hey, down the road, we are going to face this. And our own success is only going to magnify this issue and challenge. So we can hold on and we can work to maximize our own incomes, but it may come at the detriment of our people and our client experience. And so what do I mean by that? Well, this is a state of firm that a lot of people will face, which is they have to ultimately think beyond themselves and their own personal situation and be totally committed to continuing to build the business, to build the organization. Uh, 
And there become times when you want to work a little bit less or you want to slow things down. You don't want to necessarily take, you know, salary and go or, or distributions and go backward. There are times when you don't want to necessarily take the risk of investing in a major technology infrastructure upgrade because it simply makes life more challenging and difficult, right? And so they knew that if they waited to do this, that they might be those folks. They might be those people that said, hey, we're now we're five years older and, oh my God, life is really good. So they actually took the step before they needed to because they wanted to, because they got approached by lots of different folks that, you know, in 05, 06, and, you know, the early parts of 07, who wanted to buy their cash flow because they had gotten to, again, back in 07, a size and a scale that, that certainly, you know, would have made headlines. And they said, we're only going to do this if it helps our clients, if it helps our people, and if we really can see a path to a better future with it, we're all going to be okay. None of us are going to eat ramen noodles. So I feel so blessed and I always am so appreciative to them for having that mindset. And a lot of RIA owners may not have that strength to very practically say, it's okay to think beyond oneself. My Monte Carlo will work. I don't have to maximize. I don't have to hold on until the very end. Instead, I can ask the question, what's going to be better for the long term of my organization and do some. And so, so, so they took that leap of faith. They planned for that and they had that foresight. And I will forever be grateful. My colleagues will forever be grateful. And and I got to tell you, I really believe when I think about them, that I think about their selflessness. I think about their vision of, you know, uh, uh, having a longer term view of our industry and the world. I think about their their trust. You You said they handed over the reins. They actually tapped me on the shoulder at 31 years of age and said, hey, we got into this business to be great advisors. You've shown, again, I mean, it, you cannot become the leader of a, of a successful wealth management firm unless you started it without having a great work ethic, without being intelligent, without having some competency and skill set there. But a lot of mine was being in the right place at the right time and having a founding generation of folks that had those core values and and characteristics that I mentioned that said, let's try to put this person in this role so that we can go back and be the best wealth advisors we can. And that's our secret sauce. That's our superpower, being great wealth advisors. And this kid, I'll call myself a kid, seems to have an interest and again, hopefully a competency to run this thing. And we're going to still be here. And in fact, because we're doing this now, we're going to be here for even longer, that we'll be, we'll be by his side and it will leverage us. It will make the firm better. And the downside risk is not all that significant because, you know, we're going to do this together. And I, again, I mean, I guess I, I, I say this as humbly as I possibly can. The proof has been in the pudding, uh, so to speak. Like we've had great outcomes 
I've been very fortunate <laughs> that <laughs> I have, I have, you know, oh, strong markets, great organic growth, great inorganic growth will, you know, will certainly make a lot of people look really smart and capable, but, <laughs> but, but it's been a good run. And, I, but I will, I, oh, sorry, I, will, I was going to say, I, I will tell you a funny story, which is the first year or two, I definitely had more phone conversations and emails than in-person meetings with, <laughs> with other leaders, you know, the, 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 and the reason being just, just so they didn't quite, <laughs> at least they would have an initial like yep. digital virtual interaction with you. And then they could sit across to me like, oh, oh my God, you're young. Yes, that's exactly right. Because the first question, whenever you get in the room and you are that young and you're among 65 year old leaders is how old are you? And so they haven't yet seen your capabilities. They haven't yet seen, you know, who you are, you know, and your values as a person. And so the great thing is email and phone allowed me to build up some credibility. And then (laughs) the question always came up, but it didn't always, it came up more as comic relief after we had our serious business conversations. And they said, all right, come on how old are you really? <laughs> and tell me your story. And, and so, uh, yeah, so, so, so pretty funny. So how did, I mean, how did you get to that point? Like, what, what were you, what were you doing in the firm? What was your path in the firm that they turn you at, I guess, like turn you at 31, so the deal can close at 32, that you can become a CEO of a multi-billion dollar RA. So uh, I'll give you a little background on myself. I, I don't know if any of this is interesting. I apologize if it's uh, if it's oversharing, but you know I'm a St. Louis boy, born and raised. Went to Vanderbilt University for undergrad. I was a history major, but I took more economic and finance classes than you needed to 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 major. I just didn't take the right combination. After college, I went and did basically valuation work, you know, light investment banking work within an energy company down in Texas. So we were, you know, valuing and and transacting uh, gas pipeline deals and and uh, you know working on power plant, you know, purchases and so forth. And I woke up one day and I, I tell this story a lot. You know, I, I felt like I was taking money from one bucket and I was putting it into another, but I wasn't really creating value. I wasn't getting the, you know, like the, the, the kind of psychic benefit and, and other benefits that you really want to get in a career if you're going to do this for the next 30, 40 years of your life. So here I am a young, you know, in, in my 20s and I have this epiphany. This isn't what I want to do. And I better not get caught up in the money. I better not get caught up in, you know, the deal making and, um, and all of that stuff. And so what did I do? I went home. I literally quit the job. That was a funny experience. I can certainly tell you that someday. But I left the organization and I went home. I moved back in with my parents. I applied to law school because I wanted to zig when others zagged. All my friends were going to business school. So I figured getting a, a, a law degree might be a different thing. And and I, I helped my dad. He had a small little manufacturing business in the gambling industry, which again is another fun story, but uh, for another time. And I, I loved I loved working with him for the time that we got to, to work together, helped him to sell that business and then went to law school. And you know, law school uh, is an opportunity to reflect and think about what you want to do when you when you grow up. And I found well, hopefully you learn a little bit about the law too. Yes. But mostly it's self reflection. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, and we'll have to ask my professors about that one. But uh, <laughs> but uh, no, absolutely. And 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 so I found Buckingham 
by reading one of Larry Swedro's books that happened to be on my dad's desk at home. And I read about 60 or 80 pages and I walk back in to my dad's office and I'm like, you know, why did I not know about this? And, you know, you've got to make an introduction to me, uh, to these guys. He said, well, you know, Bert Schweitzer, you know, one of the founders, he's like, you know, used to be my accountant. I've known him forever and stuff. I said, I I need a lunch. And so, so my entree into the firm was truly, you know, reading one of Larry's books, becoming so passionate about the belief system and the way that they were operating. And, and I had been, I had been an active you know, investor. I was a little bit of a day trader. I thought it was fun to watch CN- CNBC. And now, I mean, all of us know all the academic is out, out you know, uh, it's out there. You know, we, 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 can, we, we don't need to exhaust that debate. You're, on you're not going to be retiring on your day trading account at this point. Exactly. So uh, I was just like, how do I not know about this? And here's a small firm in St. Louis, Missouri, that, um, <laughs> that seemed to have so much potential and such great core foundation. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be get in there any way I could. And so I legitimately started first as an unpaid intern, uh, my first, my summer after my first year of law school. And then I think they felt bad and paid me $8 an hour. And my story is truly one of, I have had every role in the place. I helped set up our compliance you know, program. Um, I certainly did, you know, legal counsel type stuff. I led us through our transaction with focus. I provided practice management solutions to our BAM firms. I did operations. I was in, I did, I was in human resources, you know, peripherally. I did everything. I was a jack of all trades. I did everything that you think of, you know, within a small firm. And basically they looked around one day and said, my gosh, He's taken all of this stuff off of our plates. <laughs> Let's give him the role. Let's give him the title. And, you know, I think when, when a lot of organizations think about taking over as the leader, you think about taking over as the operational leader. And then the reality is it morphs into the strategic leader, leader that is driving the vision uh, forward, the leader that is actually working on your biggest opportunities. And I think that that's a little bit about how my career path here unfolded. It just, if I'm being candid, if I'm being reflective, it just unfolded even faster than than even I thought it would. And certainly you dream of being a leader of 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 the business that you work in. And I just I feel always feel so fortunate that <laughs> that I got that tap on my shoulder. And there's there's a funny story there that 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 I always love to share. When they actually did that, one of Bert Schweitzer and Steve Laurie, who was our chief talent officer at the time, asked me to come in for a meeting. And they said, we have something very serious to discuss with you. So most people are, you know. Excellent. So you're getting fired. Exactly, right? So, so, <laughs> so, so most folks that walk into that room, you know, basically say, I'm in trouble. What did I do? Well, in my mind, I hadn't screwed anything up. <laughs> like I thought things were going great. I was just Why am I getting fired? <laughs> I thought I was doing well. Right. And so Bert says to me, he's like, You're going to want to simply listen to what I have to say and not do what you normally do, Adam, which is jump to conclusions or talk. And, and anybody who knows me knows I can be pretty passionate about topics. I can go on and on. And I don't do it uh, to hear my own voice. I do it because it's just my personality. I'm, I am passionate and, and I love to, to, to engage in the dialogue and stuff. So I had to sit there as they tried to scare me 
but ultimately decided to tell me, you know, that, that the partnership had really voted and it was time to have a truly dedicated leader and that they weren't going anywhere, that they were going to be by my side and that in a year I would assume the title but practically today, they wanted me to function as if I were as as if I had the title and was in the job. And Bert had two things for me as I as I walked out of the room. The first was don't screw this up. But again, because some people are are, are speaking, you know, are listening to this in the car. Screw was not the word yes. that he that he used, which I always think is uh-huh. funny because I had never heard him cuss before. And uh, and he was of course teasing. He had this wonderful smile on his face. And then the second thing was after Steve Laurie walked out of the room and Bert and I were alone, he also said, all right, what did I just tell you? He said, you're getting the title next year, but practically practically speaking, you're supposed to assume the role and responsibilities today. And he said, I have great confidence in you. I have great trust in you. I wouldn't be having this conversation if we weren't ready. And so for all intents and purposes, today you are CEO. So start acting like it. I'm down the hall if you need me. And uh, I mean, again, it just kind of speaks to the type of leadership and founding generation that I was fortunate to have. And uh, it, it, it makes for a fun story too. So you know, when you're coming in at a firm that size, I guess I'm, I'm even curious both then and maybe comparing to today, like what does a CEO do? Exactly. In a firm that size, like I know, you know, for the overwhelming majority of advisory firms are up to 100 million solos, a subset of them are uh, larger enterprises that are maybe hundreds of millions or up to a billion or two. But even in those environments, like most of the time, the CEO is like a hat that a partner, often a founder wears on top of a bunch of management duties and also handling 72 clients. Yep. So when in like in a firm at, at your size, even for where it was and then what it is today, like wh- what does a CEO do? How do we think about like standalone CEO of a wealth management firm? Yeah. So, so what I will share with you is uh, it's a lot easier for me to speak to what I do today then <laughs> then go back in time and think about uh, the differences. So let me start let me start with today and we'll go backward because I think I think that process will be helpful to me. Today, I think that there's a handful of things that I focus my time and energy on. The first is strategy, okay? So I believe our industry is getting more complex, not not less. I think competition is increasing, I think technology and infrastructure challenges are alive and real, and you've got to be, you know, looking out into the future to connect all that to what a client experience really needs to be. I think certainly think the legal and regulatory environment is more challenging than it has ever been. I think I think the war for talent and the talent shortfall are all real. And there are so many other things. So part of your time as a leader of a larger wealth management firm has to be thinking about, you know, there's that great, you know, sports analogy or, or, or story about Wayne Gretzky that he, he skated to where the puck was going to be. And I think that, that as a leader of, of a wealth management, of a larger wealth management firm, you've got to be focusing some of your time, energy and effort, not on the day to day but on that stuff. And and not just thinking about it, but making plans and getting into action 
to put that into place. And again, not just being folks that spend their time, you know, in the media talking about this stuff, being back home, working with your advisory team members, working with other leaders within your organization, turning strategy into action. Action, And, um, you know, Steve Laurie, who I mentioned earlier, once, once told me, strategy is not easy, but it is nowhere near as challenging as execution. And so I think, I think a CEO's responsibility is to turn that strategy into action and make sure that it really moves forward. So, that, so that's one component of my time. The second component, I would say, is our biggest, our biggest growth opportunities. So what does that mean today? Well, it certainly means working with our advisors and, and, our, and our leaders that work with our advisors on the organic growth strategies. Okay. It also absolutely means our inorganic growth strategies too. I don't want anybody to join our organization without me being a central part of bringing them in from a transaction. So I am personally very involved in that process. We certainly have a dedicated team, but myself, our president and chief operating officer, Dave Levin, Shannon O'Toole, our chief talent officer, all of us spend a considerable amount of our time um, on those inorganic growth strategies. On the BAM side of the business, you know, while we have really become very particular about who we bring on to the platform, again, bringing on a firm with existing assets so right now we're onboarding a firm that's, you know, that's got roughly 400 million of assets and there's, you know, a handful of others with hundreds of millions right behind it. I have been personally involved in that along with the president of that division, Al Sears, because I think that's critical and important. So I, again, I would say your biggest growth opportunities. And, and, and that also means on the expense side of the equation. So our relationships with, you know, our, our various strategic partners, our, our relationships with focus, you know, I'm intimately involved in that. And then, you know, the third area that I spend my time on today is culture, right? So if you want to be the type of organization that we want to be, the tone has to start from the top. And so I do not pretend I am a perfect leader in, in, in any way, but I think you will be hard pressed to find somebody who cares more than I do. And um, again, I don't say that in any kind of a braggocious way. I just simply say that as I, f I care so greatly about our people and our clients that I want as we grow to maintain the roots, the history, the legacy of what this place was built on. And I don't know if you know Scott Slater at Fidelity. Heard him say a few weeks ago, or actually may have even been last week, a great phrase that we want to out-national the local and out-local the national. And, you know, and I think that that's something that culturally we care greatly about, which is we, that we do not hide that we want to be a big firm with big firm resources. Okay, because we think that really does make us better. We think it positions us well. We think it creates opportunity for our people. We think it can turn into a great, great outcome for our end clients. But at the same time, we are not unaware that this is a local, personal, intimate client service experience and business. And so if you forget, you have to have that 
that national with the local combination, then, you know, then I think you're going to miss the target most times and, and build something that, that really isn't all that exciting or thrilling or, or, or rewarding. It might be financially rewarding, but I'm not sure that you're going to feel all that great. And the fourth thing that I spend my time on uh, is leading our C-suite, right? So we're one of those organizations that's actually built out dedicated C-suite members. So a uh, chief investment. So what is a, what is a C-suite? Like what is a C-level executive structure look like yeah. for a firm like yours? So, so, we, so we, have a, we have a president and chief operating officer of the whole business. That's Dave Levin that I mentioned. We have a chief talent officer. That's Shannon O'Toole. We have a chief innovation officer. That's Jeff Reming. And I love, I've always, uh, sometimes I love our titles, but Jeff, Jeff is focused on the future and innovation and our infrastructure and making sure that, that, that we are keeping up with the times and not, not just keeping up, but hopefully, you know, trudging ahead. You know, we certainly have a chief investment officer, uh, general counsel and, and chief compliance officer. That's Sal Papa. You know, I, I mentioned our, our, our chief investment officer. That's Jared Kaiser. And we certainly still have Larry Swedro as well. Uh, you know, we have a head of finance. That's that's Dan Anderson. So, you know, that that's kind of the makeup, if you will, C-suite. Um, in our world, you know, and, and also the, the, the leader of transactions, Jeff McGovern, just because I'm so intimately involved in that piece of it reports to me as well. But, but I do spend, you know, day-to-day management time with the leaders of our, our team members. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's probably the fourth component of, you know, what I do. So kind of, kind of like reflecting back of how that, how that has changed over time, yeah, I mean, first we didn't have a C-suite, so I had direct leadership responsibilities for our advisory team members. I was personally, you know, involved in so many elements of of various components of what I just said. We have people that are now dedicated to those areas. Um, I mean, that's the biggest thing to reflect on, which is we now have people that are in charge of those functions. And, and by the way, that's one of the things I think that's been so attractive to folks wanting to join forces, whether that's on the Buckingham or BAM side, which is they know that we are focused on that stuff. They know that we have people that spend all of their time on those things. While it's tough to to sometimes give some of those things up because you're very close to the people in your organization and it's what you've done for so long, at the same time, I don't think that our growth trajectory has ever been better. And I got to believe that's because I myself have gotten leverage. And so, you know, and then the other thing is, I kind of mentioned this, which is in most other organizations, I think they often look at a leader as, a, as an operational leader. If you rewound 10 years ago, if you rewound eight years ago, so many of my day-to-day efforts and, and, and responsibilities and tasks were operationally tied. So, you know, I guess I've I've graduated. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so when, how, like, how big do the firm have to get before you got to that, that level of C-suite depth? Like, does, does that start coming around at 5 billion of AUM at 10 billion of AUM? Like, yeah. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the honest answer is it's probably going to be different for all organizations. 
but I think it needs to start with a commitment to it. I think the ownership group needs to recognize that to get farther, faster, to build the type of organization that you might want to build, if this is directionally the the type of place that you would like to, to someday have, that it's really about taking that first step. And, and again, it, it started with me back in, you know, when I was 31, I, I, in many ways, was that first step, right? They, they said, hey, we're going to make you dedicated, specialized leadership. It, it didn't have to be me. There's a lot of other great team members around that, that you know, could have also similarly been, been chosen. But it, it was that commitment to say, we're going to free you up to do this. So you, in turn, can free the rest of the organization up to do even better things that is so critical. And and guess what? It probably cost them money to do it. Um, it probably scared them a little bit, you know, as, as, as much credit as I gave them to, for having that foresight, you know, and courage. But it gets easier um, after that. And so the idea of hiring a general counsel and chief compliance officer, like a true, de- you know, like real general counsel three years ago. Uh, like that was a lot easier than, 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 you know, than probably making the move to, to say, Hey, Adam, you know, you're our first dedicated leader. Yeah. So as someone who spends, you know, almost all your time just focused around strategy and growth opportunities and, and dynamics in the industry atop this 30 plus billion dollar advisory platform in our independent space, I'm really curious, like what, what worries you? Like, what keeps you up at night about current landscape and, and trends in the industry? Yeah. Is it like, is it robo-advisor stuff? Is it competition? Like, what what worries you? The answer is varied, and it depends probably on the day or the night or, uh, you know, I mean, there's just been a lot of things over the years. But I, I think if I tried to summarize it up, it would be that... If we are not delivering a world-class, exceptional client experience, I think everything else you know, uh, it ends up being kind of a, an afterthought. Because if you're not doing everything you possibly can to, to add value to clients' lives, to build out more you know, solutions, to, to enhance your offering, and then the reality is it doesn't matter who your competition is because, you know, everybody's going to eat your lunch. It doesn't matter what technology you're using. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, that stuff. Like those are all components, I think, of, you know, of a world-class client experience. And again, uh, Bert Schweitzer's wisdom, you know, he said to me also, again, I can't remember if I said this earlier, it's add value to clients' lives and you'll never have to really worry about profits. So most of my restless nights are probably focused on are we doing enough there now i feel i feel we are but i think that that needs to be a question that any leader continues to ask every single day and have a healthy fear and concern robos won't be competition if you're adding great value they might be to a certain segment of clients you know you may no longer get the do it yourselfers you may never you may no longer get you know those that just want an investment experience, but, you know, but then the question is, is are the wirehouses or the other independent RIAs enhancing a wealth management experience that, that, that's going to, again, compete with you in, you know, in very direct ways. 
the other things that I would say that that I think about a lot are matching client experience with tools and solutions for the benefit of our advisors. So are we doing enough to, to arm advisors in ways that allow them to be successful? Again, however that's defined. And so whether it's Buckingham, whether it's BAM, we have to keep asking ourselves that question. And then I think, you know, again, there's a whole lot of other stuff that, you know, that that I certainly think about. But but I think those are the primary things I'd I'd probably make mention of. How about you, Michael? What's what's on your radar? I you know, the to me the biggest you know, I I look a lot at the divide of the industry around that, you know, the the big get bigger and the and the and the small have to survive environment. You know, while we said earlier the you know, the it's sort of the golden age for the solo advisor from a like a pure profitability, productivity, efficiency perspective, thanks to all the technology. You know, I I, I think like we're we're at a high point for the productivity and efficiency of a solo advisor, and we're at the absolute low point for the marketing capabilities and the differentiating factors of the solo advisor. And you know, I, I do see an environment right now where, you know, frankly, large firms like yours are getting better at both inorganic acquisitions as well as organic growth. And, you know, while at your size, like even 3% organic growth is a challenging heroic feat, like 3% growth on, on your firm is a billion dollars. Like a mediocre growth rate that barely keeps pace with inflation is more than what most multi-advisor firms build in a 20-year career. And so, you know, I see this world where a lot of the the growth is frankly concentrating in in larger firms that are either, you know, building up boutique experiences at scale the way that I think you guys are trying to do or they're building just the truly scaled mass advice solution and so I'm, I'm thinking of firms like what Vanguard is building which egregiously it keeps getting mischaracterized as a robo advisor and they're really not they're they've hired i think like 600 cfps in 2 years to oversee a 100 billion dollars of aum and the growth rate is just accelerating i think technically they're still in beta i'm not even i'm not even sure it's like full release yet right and i mean you just start thinking about that like 100 billion dollars they charge 30 basis points so yeah, you have to figure out how to how to service and scale this, but they have three hundred million dollars of advisory fees that they've taken in over just the past two years. Like just three hundred million dollars of annual revenue over just the past two years, and so yep. to me, like the 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 large firms are gobbling up the growth. So the good news about being solo is you can be really nimble and you have in tremendous operational efficiencies because you can rely on technology and don't have to build out this deep staff infrastructure. But if you don't have scale, just to scale the marketing, I think that environment becomes very challenging. And so, you know, I see all these crossroads that are coming in the in the industry that you know, large firms can scale their marketing. Small firms are going to have to become niche specialists just to differentiate themselves from the kind of resources that a Vanguard or a Schwab or a, a Fidelity are going to bring to the table as they build out their planning divisions. And you might say, well, you know, I'm going to give my clients a, a deeper, higher level of service. Well, 
okay, so does Buckingham and they have a 300 staff member head start. So how are you going to yep. differentiate against what they're doing? And, you know, the, the good news about being small is you can be really nimble. It's like, you know, the, an advisor could pick this amazing niche of like, you know, young doctors in the St. Louis area and just build around that. And it's probably too small of a local niche to really be cost efficient for you guys to pursue. Like it's, it's not a big enough market to move a $30 billion firm's needle, but you can have a wonderfully successful solo advisory firm just targeting into that hyper-focused niche, whether it's local or virtual or or wherever you go. So like I, I see huge opportunities for small firms that find that kind of focus. But to me, the the sort of the strange crossroads is the the efficiencies for small firms have never been better, but the marketing challenges for small firms have never been worse. I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, and one thing I will share is we, we've all heard, you know, we, we all should have our heads not in the sand on Vanguard and solutions like that. But at the same time, we should also be very aware of how differentiated we can continue to be from them. I mean, I've heard from Vanguard employees about what that client experience is like and that, you know, is great an investment experience as it may be, although again, maybe a little bit more generic than what a lot of us might provide. It's adequate, right? And it's and it's really good for a big chunk of the population. They haven't yet perfected truly delivering what we all can deliver as it relates to the wealth, you know, the true wealth advisor experience. But that's today. What happens when when Vanguard is focused on this for another five years and ten years? So if we are if we are not aware of what could be coming down the pike, then then yep. again shame on us, right? Yep. Well, and yeah, you know, there were there were a lot of people that laughed when Van, when Vanguard launched the the index fund, and you know back when they launched the index fund, it was also a heck of a lot more expensive, right? It 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 took ten, twenty, thirty years of them iterating with scale. And then all of a sudden, the index fund got down to about three basis points. And now no one's laughing because they're taking more growth than I think the entire mutual fund industry in the aggregate, just to Vanguard. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's true. Like, I, yeah, I think a lot of independent advisory firms today have a value proposition that is stronger than what Vanguard is doing at their size and scale right now. But Vanguard's reaching a lot of clients that advisors weren't reaching anyways. They're using that to build their base. They're going to get bigger and better. And even for a lot of individual advisors, you may be better at what you're doing than what Vanguard is providing, but you still have to figure out how to communicate that to prospects who trust Vanguard and don't know who you are. Well, and and think about this. Think about how difficult it is to already differentiate ourselves from the wirehouse world, right? The vernacular that is used, um, the marketing dollars that they have available at their disposal. <laughs> you know, you think Buckingham's ever going to have a Super Bowl ad? I, I, I highly doubt it, right? Practically speaking, uh, these folks can deploy resources because of their size and scale that make this very, very confusing to the end investor. And so even if we are better than Vanguard, being able to articulate that in a clear and concise and effective way that explains why on average we can charge 50 or 60 basis points for a higher net worth client where they can charge 30 
is important because somebody is going to ask the question. It's, they're not going to disagree probably that you are worth something more, but it's going to be hard to understand. Is it 10 basis points? Is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 70? And again, I think so much of that depends on what people build out and create, but doing that is not enough. Being able to articulate it and clearly understand it and define it and be passionate and, and truly believe it is something entirely different. So where do you guys build from here? Like what's what's next for Buckingham and, and BAM? Or is there even like a, a focus between Buckingham and BAM at this point? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I've said this already, but, it, but it, maybe I'll re-articulate it in a way that, that hopefully is a little more eloquent and concise, which is where we go from here is this. We're trying to be a destination for like-minded advisors that are culturally aligned, ideologically aligned, and service model aligned. I think we can help them at all stages of their, you know, kind of advisor life cycle. And I think that, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is that was actually the reason we got into the transaction effort was because our clients on the BAM side were asking us for solutions. So we're going to continue to be a solution provider to advisors so that they in turn can be solution providers to their clients. And what does that look like? You know, if, if you told me today we'd be sitting here at, thir- you know, 33, 34 billion of collective assets with 20 locations, the BAM would have 20 billion, the Buckingham would be over 13 with a very clear path to be over 15. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it. And so what that turns into tomorrow or five years from now or 10 years from now, I think is anyone's guess. I just, whatever it looks like, I still want to be like that organization that our founding generation started and just keep providing the opportunities, keep living our mission, our vision, our values, and just growing up more and more and being a bigger and better version of ourselves. And if, if, if that occurs, you know, I'm going to be pretty proud of the organization that we've built and feel pretty good that hopefully left it in a great situation for, for the generations after me. So this is a show about success. And one of the things we always talk about at the, at the end of every podcast is just you know, what, what success really means. Cause it, it means different things to different people, sometimes even different things to us at different stages of our own lives and careers. So you know, by by any objective measure, you're at a, a phenomenal point of success. You you came in at 32 to manage a six billion dollar firm combined. You're at 34 today. I see more more than five x the firm in in barely 10 years. You know, it's it's an incredible business success. But I, I, I'm curious, just for you at the at the personal level, for yourself, how do you define success for yourself? Yeah. Well, I'll share a little bit about me me personally. So I have a wonderfully amazing and much more talented than I am wife who is a pediatrician. And she and I were college sweethearts and have really known and been together, basically uh, known each other and been together since we were 18. We have three awesome, healthy children, uh, nine, six, and four, two girls and a little boy. And this is just a really fun stage of life, working hard, but at the same time, uh, uh, I'm getting to be part 
of my family growing and prospering. And, and I am one of those folks that as much as I love what I do, and I do, I am so passionate about this and, and believe so strongly in, in what we're doing, I do actually get equal feelings of success on the other side of my life, um, my family. And this weekend was, was a really particularly fun weekend. My oldest daughter got first place all around at a uh, gymnastics meet. And I got to be there, you know, and watch her. And I, you know, we made the time to do that. Uh, in two weeks, we're traveling to Kansas City for state to be with her. My youngest daughter, you know, or, or who's my middle child, similarly uh, having, you know, a lot of, you know, fun success. And you know, and my youngest, and, and my youngest, who's a boy, is you know one of the funniest kids I've ever met. And so, just watching them grow up, watching them, you know, achieve happiness. It's really funny how you change your definition of success once you have children. And if they grow up to be happy and healthy, well-rounded kids and have confidence and, and, and are wonderful people and do good things in this world, like then you know what? That's probably the biggest mark I can make on this world. At the same time, if I can combine that and you know, do some pretty cool things professionally myself. I won't turn that down either. Um, you know, I, well, it, it was, uh, what was it, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka, where Gene Wilder at the very end said, you know, have you ever heard the story of the, of, uh, you know, the boy who got everything he ever, you know, dreamed of? And Charlie says to him, he goes, no. And he goes, but do you know what happened? He says, no. And he goes, he lived happily ever after or something like that. I mean, that, that's, well, again, not to be too cheesy, but but at this this point in my life, I'm I, I really feel uh, that I've been blessed, and um, and and again now, I think I'm turning to thoughts of legacy and how I can help others. You know, both at Buckingham and BAM, as well as the BAM firms that we su- support and our end investor clients, as well as, you know, again, my family and my friends and having them feel as happy as I do on a daily basis. So uh, again, hopefully not, not too cheesy and answers the question, but uh, just a little bit about me. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. I've felt the, uh, the similar pull as well. You know, I've, I've got three as well, a little bit younger than yours, but in that same sequence, we were girl, girl, boy, ours are six, four, two. And, uh, you know, it, it is true that the, your definitions of success start changing once 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 you have kids and 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 family becomes more and more of that picture and and uh you know it's it's interesting trying to balance the two to say the least and and figuring out how to do the balance and and to nurture both the way that they want and need to be nurtured when you've got a family and a and a business which sometimes feels like one giant child as well. Yep, absolutely. And and I think you and I both share a very common challenge which is our travel schedules, right? Uh I I know, I know your uh your conference uh schedule is is robust. Well, you know, when we and you're out on the road seeing firms that you're talking to about potential acquisitions and deals. Exactly. And so something has to give. And so, you know, one of the things that I've that I've started to do more and more is is really be very purposeful about my travel schedule uh, or if there is truly something that is important to to travel to you know hey consider how you can make it a fun family event as well or include the kids 
in the process of where you're going and why and what to learn about um, about that destination. Or, you know, I, I went and did some speaking down in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, a few weeks ago. You know, the the sessions were over on Thursday evening, and my family came and met me for a long weekend. So, figuring out a way to to incorporate both sides of your life, you know, I think has been has been something I've been trying to do. And, you know, I think we'll all struggle with that, you know, over the years, but, but to actually care about about it and doing it well, I think is important. Yeah. Well, amen. Well, thank you for taking your time from busy family schedule to, uh, to join us here on on the Financial Advisor Success podcast and, and, and share some of this uh, amazing story that you've had of the of the run that you've had. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, it, it, again, it's been an absolute honor to spend some time with you. You know, congratulations on all the success and an impact that you're having too, because, uh, you know, it's really fun to watch this industry, uh, to, to see all the great stories that are out there. And, uh, you know, again, privileged to spend some time with you. And uh, hopefully this was, you know, somewhat interesting and valuable to, to some of your listeners. Hey, Amen. I, I think it will be. It's a pretty powerful story. Well, Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My pleasure. Take care. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.